I used to be a really big fan of Gary Larson's comic strip, The Far Side. Anybody like The Far Side? Kind of dated now. But today's passage in 1 Samuel reminded me uh, of this Far Side cartoon. There's a woman driving in her car, obviously in her rearview mirror. There's an eyeball that's extremely close. And of course, that mirror says, objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. But you know you're in real trouble if something's closer than that. Um, the reason that reminded me of this passage is sometimes, sometimes our problems, sometimes our enemies are closer than we think. Another example, this is uh, uh, on the left there, that's George Tennant, the former director of the CIA, and he is awarding a commendation uh, to a woman named, um, I forget her name here, I've got it. this is Anna Montez on your right. She was uh, America's top analyst on all things Cuba. It earned her the, the nickname the Queen of Cuba inside the, the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency. She was a star in the intelligence world. She also was a spy for Fidel Castro for 17 years. And no one had any idea. She has a brother a sister and a sister-in-law who are all decorated FBI agents. And they had no idea. Uh, about 12 years into her time there, there was some red flag that was raised. She was investigated as a spy, and it was so she was so above reproach, they just kind of, oh, that can't be true. And she passed secrets to Castro for another five years before she was taken to her new home at a federal penitentiary, which is where she is now. Sometimes our enemies are closer than we think. This morning we were reading, this is our third lesson from the book of 1 Samuel. In our first two, we met a woman named Hannah. She'll appear briefly in today's passage. Hannah was a woman struggling with infertility. She had, for her adult life, her hopes and dreams and what she thought would fix her hurt and her pain was to have children. And she finally poured that out to God and vowed to God that what I need to fix my pain and what is wrong is you. And I'm so serious about that, God, that she made this vow to God. If you give me a child, I will give him back to you. I won't even keep him because my hopes are set so firmly on the Lord. And last week, we saw Hannah fulfill that vow. She gave her only child, a youngster of about three years of age, to be adopted to the high priest of Israel, a guy named Eli. And Hannah wrote a song for that occasion, for the day that she left her son behind. It was the last thing we read last week. And some of the last things she read, Hannah wrote about how sometimes God brings low those who are high. God takes those who are in power and removes them. He, he uh, breaks the strength of the powerful. Today we're going to see that those enemies of God who need brought down 
aren't Canaanites. They aren't foreign kings. They are the very priests she gave her son to. Today's passage, another rather long one, but it's about the evil of Eli's sons, the high priest's sons. Uh, Most of it's been about the judgment that God will choose to pour out because of their evil. Let's read our passage. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to read verses 11 through 36. Follow along with me while I read. This is the New American Standard Bible. It reads this way. Then Elkanah, that's Hannah's husband, he went to his home at Ramah, but the boy, Samuel, ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And the custom of the priests with the people, when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come While the meat was boiling, he would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust that fork into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. That's what they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Verse 15. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, and he won't take any boiled meat from you, only the raw. But if the man who was at the tabernacle that day said to him, well, they must surely burn the fat first, and then take as much as you desire, then the priest's servant would say, no, you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. And thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. And his mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife Hannah and say, May the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one she dedicated to the Lord. And they went went to their own home. The Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived, and she gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Verse 22, now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So Eli said to his sons, why do you do such things? The evil that I hear from all the people. No, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If a man sins against another man, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? The sons would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? 
Did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Verse 29. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for Israel. And an old man will not be in your house forever. Verse 33. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar so that your eyes will, will fail from weeping and your soul grieve. And all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. And I will build him an enduring house and he will walk before my anointed always. Everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, please assign me to one of the priest's offices so that I may eat a piece of bread. And there is our long passage. The bulk of that passage, like I said, is about the evil of the two uh, sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, and then the judgment that God prescribes based on that. So we're going to start this morning just describing what all that stuff is that these two did wrong. First, the author of 1 Samuel does not beat around the bush when it comes to these two guys. He jumps right in, jumps off the top turnbuckle on these two guys in verse 12 when he says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Not a lot of beating around the bush right there. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Uh, the word for worthless here, the Hebrew word is Belial, and it, your Bible might say scoundrels. That's what it means. It's just a word that describes somebody that's such a bad guy, in this case guy, such a bad guy that anybody would say, no, that's a bad guy. It's not open for debate. Now, why were they such bad guys? Well, that's the second part of the sentence. Because they did not know the Lord. These two might have been priests to Yahweh, the God of Israel, but they didn't know Yahweh, the God of Israel. They either don't believe he's real or they don't care that he is. Why are they willing to do these terrible things right in the tabernacle, which was literally the house of God on earth? Because they didn't know the Lord. They didn't care at all about what the Lord thought. That's the overview. Now, what did these guys do in the house of the Lord that was so bad? Well, a lot of that stuff gets lost on us. The first thing is this weird meat-stealing scheme that shows up in verses 13 through 16. Here's what that's about. And this is, 
the worst part of all their charges. This is what's presented as, as the worst thing they do. There's something to do with a, with a servant or an attendant. So it wasn't Hophni and Phineas doing this directly. They sent a thug to do this for them. A guy would show up with a three-pronged fork. It seems to me, if it's only got three prongs, it shouldn't be a fork. It should be a Greek. But who am I to argue with the word of God? Thank you. I'll be here all week. Don't forget to tip your waitress. Uh, Here's what this is about. If your family was at the tabernacle and you were at the boiling meat in a pot portion of the festivities, that means your sins have been taken care of in the whole burnt offering and you are preparing to share a meal literally, well, figuratively, with God. Uh, Your sins are taken care of, so now you get to share a meal with God because you're at peace with God. You have fellowship with God. And we don't necessarily know this because we don't know the book of Leviticus all that well, but the original audience who grew up 3,000 years ago as Israelites, they knew by that point the priests have already gotten some choice cuts of meat from every sacrifice that comes in. But for Hophni and Phinehas, they didn't think that was enough. So they would send a a thug to go steal meat that was supposed to be other people's special meal with God. See, the priests got God's portion. And they ate God's part of the meal like on behalf of God. That wasn't good enough for them. So they would go steal meat that wasn't theirs. And sometimes before it even got cooked, they would show up and steal raw meat. And the people would say things like, well, at least burn the fat. Nobody's supposed to eat the fat. And they would say, no, you give it to us now or we'll beat you up. Well, the the fat thing and, and all of the sacrifices, no one was supposed to eat the fat. It's not that God was looking out for Israel's cholesterol or saturated fat intake. or anything. They did not have to worry about their fat intake in their diet. That's not what this is. And it's not that Israelites weren't allowed to ever eat fat. It's, but in these sacrifices, all of the fat was God's. And here's why. It was a part of worship. In any animal, including me and you, by the way, Whenever we eat more than we need, guess how that gets stored? Okay? If I eat more than, I, than my body needs, in fact, when I eat more than my body needs, it will get stored right around here. Right? It's fat. Fat is excess. And so in the worship of God, this God who gave even our animals more than they desired And the symbol of that is fat. God gets all of that. As a a symbol of my understanding, I I have even more than I'll ever need from you, God. And so God was to get all of the fat. These guys, they don't care because they don't care about God. Our author already told us that. Those aren't even their only problems in verse 22. These guys had uh, illicit, immoral relationships with women who worked at the tabernacle. These guys are 
immoral, womanizing uh, thugs and thieves who do not care at all what God sees or what God thinks. Other than that, I'm sure they're fine. But these, these are rotten guys. In a minute, we're going to read of the judgment that God has decided to pour out on their family because of this evil. But first, we have to understand that Hophni and Phinehas aren't the only ones who are culpable um, in committing this evil. Their father, Eli, is the main guilty party. Um, in this story, a lot of what we read from God here comes from, there's this anonymous man of God who just shows up. And he's anonymous, we don't know anything about him. Uh, don't ever hear from him before or since. In the Old Testament, man of God just means prophet. And a prophet was someone who heard directly from God and then told people what God uh, wanted them to know. And so... That's where we, we do meet that guy. I'll just mention him here. But in verse 22, we learn about, we start to learn about the failure of Eli, the high priest, the dad of Hophni and Phinehas. We're told that Eli was very old by this point in the story. I don't think that means that Eli was very old before he figured out there was something wrong with his boys. I don't think Eli could have had his head that far in that much sand. seems like everyone in Israel, if you look back through uh, what we were told about the sacrifices, the boys treated everyone in Israel all the time the ways in which we just learned about. But by this point in the story, by the time Samuel gets there, Eli's very old. And whether or not this is the first time Eli confronts his sons or not, I can't tell you. But he finally confronts his son, his sons, and he does tell them some good things. He tells them, um, basically, God is not to be trifled with. My sin is not a playground. You guys are sinning. This is not just like sinning and doing something that might make one of your friends mad. You're sinning against the God of the universe, and that's a huge deal, boys. So he does warn his sons. But this confrontation is too little, too late. And I mean that those two things very literally. Eli's confrontation of his sons is too little. He doesn't go far enough. If we would go back through, for time's sake, we won't. But if we would go back through the law, these things these boys are doing right there in the tabernacle of God, they, uh, they earn, they deserve a judgment from God that over and over the law calls they are to be cut off from among their people. And there's some, there's some debate as to whether that means kicked out of the covenant community or executed and for our sake and our purposes this morning, it really doesn't matter because Eli does neither one. In fact, he doesn't do anything. 
He lets them off with a warning. And he knows what they're doing. Now, Eli, he cannot keep his adult sons from being immoral and making stupid decisions. But he could keep them from being priests. Everything we've read this morning, it's probably not everything wrong these guys do, but this is just the stuff that takes place like in church. That's just the stuff they do inside the tabernacle. Eli is the high priest. He can control that stuff, and he doesn't. And when... That's why... This was too little. At the very least, they should have been kicked out of the priesthood. You can't work here anymore, boys. You've lost your job. That's why it's too little. But this confrontation of his sons is also too late. Because, we look at the the bottom of the screen here, the end of verse 25, we read this. Eli's sons did not listen to their father's rebuke for or because, this translation says, it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Because the Lord had decided to put them to death. Now read that correctly. That does not say that these two didn't listen to their father's rebuke and therefore God decided to put them to death because they didn't listen to their dad. Backwards. This says they didn't listen to their dad because God had already decided to put them to death. That's not a very easy verse to wrap your head around, is it? That that can be a hard verse to reconcile in our minds. Some of this has to do with, this is a very special family, the high priestly family, at a special point in history when God is ready to change the direction of, of the nation of Israel, and he needs a new priest in charge. We'll get to that later. And so God is going to get rid of this family to make room for our guy Samuel, who gives his name to this book. But I don't want to take all the teeth out of this. Because there's a really difficult truth tucked in here. And that truth is this. There is no one who knows how many more chances he or she will get to repent. There is no one who knows if I will ever get another chance to change, to do things differently. We don't know that today might be my last day. I may be dead before I have another chance to repent. And at least in some instances, God can say, enough is enough. You have had your chances. It's not that these two boys had no chances. They grew up in the tabernacle. They literally had more access to the Word of God than anyone else on earth. They had more chances than anyone There came a point where God said, enough is enough. This is one of those truths. The idea 
that God could stop giving someone second, third, and fourth, and fifth, and tenth, and 165th, and 2,000 chances, that's hard for us. Because we don't want God to be like that. It's one of those things that make people say things like, you know, I, I don't want to believe in a God like that. I don't think my God would ever... You know, and I understand that sentiment. But who we want God to be does not change at all who God actually is. And the wisest thing we can do is instead of trying to pick and choose and see what we think God would probably be like, is to just figure out who God has revealed Himself to be in this book and then try to reconcile our hearts to who God has revealed Himself to be. And listen, if we get to a verse like this and and we think, man, God is more terrifying than I thought, I think that's okay. Because God is terrifying. God is love. God is mercy. But if God's not terrifying, God's mercy isn't great. Does that make sense? If we're not saved from something terrible, in God, it doesn't make the grace and the mercy God gives people amazing. And it is. Because the truth, the truth is that either, either Jesus Christ suffered under the wrath of God I deserve or that wrath is still waiting on me when I die. And the wrath of God is more terrifying than anything any of us care to ever imagine. And these two boys got to the point where God said, I'm not giving you another chance. Now this man of God who shows up tells this dad in this passage what his biggest problem is. Or his biggest problem was concerning his sons. If you look down at verse 29, here's Eli's biggest problem. It's in bold on the screen here. Here's your problem, Eli. You have honored your sons more than you have honored me. See, Eli should have been doing his best. He should have stopped at nothing to shape his sons, to point them away from their sin and toward the God of the universe. But he didn't. You know why? Because he honored his sons more than he honored his God. Boy, is that easy to do. He cares more about what his sons think than what his God thinks. He cares more about his kids' feelings than he cares about God's feelings. And that's why before the bold part, God, through this man of God, God said this to Eli. He asked him this question. Why do you hate my sacrifices? Why do you kick dirt on my offerings that I could commanded to go through? In my mind's eye, when I picture this story happening, 
I imagine Eli wanting to protest at this point when he gets asked, why do you hate my sacrifices so much? I imagine Eli wanting to go, whoa, 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 that wasn't me. I wasn't the one running around with the three-pronged fork. That was those guys, not me. He doesn't make that protest, mainly maybe because Eli's wise enough to know that holds no water. God would just say, yeah, I know it wasn't you. But you honored the ones who were doing that above honoring me. You didn't care more about what I said should go on in this place than you care about what your sons wanted to go on in this place. You know what Eli's real problem is called? You know what you call his real problem? His real problem is idolatry. An idol is anything we put in front of what we think about God, how we value God. And an idol doesn't have to be a terrible, awful thing. Most of them aren't. They can be good things. And there's a really sneaky kind of idolatry for us parents. Where yes, we love God, but we put what our kids want in front of what God wants. It's idolatry. And it's easy. You know, there is nothing, there is nothing better for our kids than if they pursue the Lord Jesus Christ with their hearts and with their lives. There's nothing better for them than that. And while we are sitting here, it's so easy to say the amen to that. But it's really easy to put my desire to not disappoint them in front of like a wholehearted devotion to what God says is best. But Pastor Matt, Pastor Matt, Pastor Matt, I don't want to do such damage to my relationship to my kids that, that I'll lose them. Listen, you don't know. You do not know that someday your kids won't come back after something has fallen apart in their lives and say, Mom, Dad, why didn't back then, why didn't you push me and aim me toward Him? Because I built my life on emptiness and vanity. We do not know what the future holds. But we can know with a lot more clarity what God wants and expects. If there is nothing better for our kids than pursuing the Lord, then there's nothing better for our kids than if their mommy and daddy pursue the Lord. And if we, if we want them to pursue the Lord as they choose a spouse, as they raise our grandkids, as they whatever in the future, nothing will help them more than that, than, than our, than seeing modeled before them our desire to put the Lord first. 
That's Eli's problem. That's his son's problems. Most of the rest of the story is about the judgment that God ordains, prescribes because of the evil in this family of priests. I'm going to summarize a lot of it for you because it frankly doesn't make a ton of sense to us. In verse 31, God says He's going to remove the strength of Eli's family. Sometimes I think we should just translate the words literally because it'd be because it's funnier that way. You know what God says there? God says literally in the Hebrew, I'm going to cut the arms off your family. That seems like a weird thing. Um, the reason that gets translated, I'm going to remove the strength of your family. Is because, you know, if you think about someone you really don't want to tangle with, I mean, if you didn't have any arms, you'd at least think about it, right? It'd be a lot easier. A lot less strength there. That's what God says. I'm going to take the strength away from your family. And here's how I'm going to do it, God says. Ultimately, here's what the punishment for this family is. Eli, you're going to lose the priesthood. Your family's not going to be the priestly family anymore. A different family from the descendants of Aaron are going to wind up being the priests. And that will happen later in the Bible after, after this book. But God... God in His providence, He often likes to work in ways where people don't know it's Him working. And that's what He says here. God says, I'm going to keep there from being any old men in your family. The men in your family are going to die like at an untimely early age. Did they get some genetic disorder? Heart problems? I don't know what male pattern baldness? I don't know what it was that they had in their family that that made the men die young. But in this ancient culture 3,000 years ago, guess where, the, guess where the power in a family line came from? The elders. It's kind of hard to have a, an influential family if you don't have any old men in that culture. And so eventually, they're going to be removed from the priesthood. They're going to be a weak family. But God says, I'm the one that's going to do it. And it's because of this. Now, God says, Eli, you're not going to be around to see all that. And do you remember who's telling Eli this? Like, who's there in front of him? It's just some random guy that says he's a prophet. How do you know if a prophet is actually speaking for God or if he's just a crackpot? It's difficult to tell. So God says through this man of God, I'll tell you how you know, you'll know this is legit, Eli. Um. This is going to be the confirming sign to you. You're not going to live long enough to see all the generations of your family lose men at a young age and lose the priesthood, but you're going to survive to see this. Both your sons are going to die on the same day. And when you see that, that's how you know that this man of God was speaking for me. That's kind of a that's kind of a scary and depressing story, isn't it? Anybody feel really uplifted by that one? You probably have issues if you do. This is, this is a dark and scary and kind of a depressing story, but I want you to know this is also a story of hope. It really, really is. There are little snippets of hope sprinkled throughout that long story. thing is, though, hope... Hope is very often quiet. The bad news is always loud. 
And the hope is often quiet. Here's the hope as we went through. Verse 11. But the boy, Samuel, he was serving the Lord under the supervision of Eli the priest. Verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. The boy was dressed in a linen ephod. His mother used to make him a little robe and bring it up to him. When she came to the temple, probably three times a year, she'd measure him out, go home and sew a little robe and, and bring it back. Verse 21, now the boy, Samuel, was growing up in the Lord's sanctuary. Next week's passage, you're going to start this way. Now the boy, Samuel, continued serving the Lord under Eli's supervision. Samuel's the hope. Now no one around knew Samuel was the hope. Also in my mind's eye, when people, when people came to the tabernacle... They knew all of the bad stuff that was happening. They'd had their meat stolen. They knew the priests were sleeping with. They knew they didn't care about the fat over and over and over. Nobody looked around and saw the kindergartner in the Halloween costume and went, well, praise God, our troubles are over. We've got a four-foot-tall mini-priest. Hallelujah. No one... No one thought that way. I'll bet, and this isn't in the Bible, it's just me. I'll bet they thought Samuel was like a sideshow. Was a freak. I'll bet they thought it was another part of this weird priestly family that shouldn't even be happening. It's the only time that we see a four foot tall priest in the Bible. Right? No one could have known. They were looking at the hope of Israel. But they were. Because God's going to change the whole country through that little boy in the priest's get up. Now, what's Samuel's superpower? Look at verse 35. God speaking here. He says, then or but... I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. He will do whatever's in my heart and mine. And I'll build for him an enduring house and he will walk before my anointed one for all time. You catch what makes Samuel so special? Does he have superpowers? Does he have millions of dollars? Is he a great athlete? No. He will do whatever is in God's heart. He will chase after and pursue what God thinks. It's in God's mind. God is quietly raising up one person who will make a huge difference and He will make that difference by pursuing the heart of God in spite of all of the evil around Him. And that's our passage. What do we learn? First, three things I want us to learn from this passage. First, today is the day of repentance. You do not know if you'll ever get another chance to repent. For some of us, that might be a habit, something we have been doing 
that we need to change, turn away from. For others, it might be, we just need to change our mind about what makes me okay with God. I need to turn away from the idea that I'm okay with God because of the good things I've done, because of religious things I've done, because of whatever, and change my mind to this fact, my only hope before God is that Jesus Christ died instead of me. And you do not know that this might not be the last chance you ever get to make that decision. To believe in Jesus Christ and pursue Him. Our sins are forgiven if we believe in Christ, but it still makes a wreck of us. Don't wait. Sin is not a playground. Repent. Change. Now. This passage teaches us a valuable lesson about parenting. If we want our kids to pursue the Lord later, we have to pursue the Lord now. Even when it makes our kids uncomfortable or it stings or, or whatever. And finally, this passage teaches us in a, in a really cool way it reminds us the bad news is always loud and hope is usually quiet. It, the bad news is still loud. It always is. It is so easy to get stuck in how everything stinks and it's all falling apart and look how bad things are now and did you hear this one and did you read that one and all is lost, right? Everything's rotten. We are right exactly where the God of the universe wants us to be at this time. We have not, I'm not saying every person is doing what God wants them to do. That's different. But all is not lost. God is still at work in ways where people don't know it's God working. Just that hope is quiet. We want the voices of hope to be louder than the bad news. I just want somebody to stand up and tell them, ah, right? Be louder than the bad news. That's not how God tends to work. There are times. But usually God hope, God's hope looks more like a kindergartner in a priest outfit than it looks like someone shouting down someone else. Usually the hope of God is contained and, and is inside of people and, and it works out through people who are willing to just pursue the heart of God in their lives, for their kids, for those around them, quietly, faithfully. That's, that's who God works with. You know, Samuel points to another quiet unassuming Israelite boy who was a young age was wandering around the temple. His name was Jesus. He will be the high priest. People wanted him to be the loudest voice, right? And the angriest guy. And, and you go get those folks. But Jesus, Jesus won through weakness and faithfulness. The bad news is loud and there's plenty of it. Don't get me wrong, but all is not lost. 
And we are not hopeless. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this this 3,000 year old book that is as contemporary as anything we can read or watch. Just, it's like it's about today and our lives because this book is alive. It doesn't go outdated because it is your word. God, for those of us here who have repenting we need to do to pursue you, pray you give us the, the courage to repent. For those of us who need to place our faith in Christ, I pray you would work in hearts to let people not wait. God, I pray for those of us who are parents that we would pursue you with our whole hearts, with our children. And God, I thank you that through the, the screaming loudness of all of the bad news, Thank you for the reminder that the hope of the world is often quiet, but it's powerful and it's real. Make us a part of your hope that we would pursue your heart and mind. That we, like if this said of Samuel, that we might walk before your anointed, your Mashiach, your Messiah, your anointed one forever and ever. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.